Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One from Eagle Speak. And thank you again for joining us for another live edition of Midrats. And if you are with that esteemed cohort that is live, I always like to make the altar call that uh, if you are so inclined, if you scroll to the bottom of the show page, that is where you will find the chat room. That's a great place during the course of the show if you have some observations you want to share or even a question you would like for us to shape in our own little way and address towards our guest. Uh, We'll both be monitoring that during the course of the show. And uh, we'll be glad to bring in your thoughts to the conversation. And uh, everybody has a busy life. And if you have to leave after a few minutes, because we do go the full hour, and you want to catch up on what you missed, if you haven't already, I'd like to invite you to go over to iTunes or Spreaker or whichever um, podcast aggregator that you like to use. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. It won't cost you a penny. And that way we'll be waiting for you at a time more convenient to your schedule. And now let's just go ahead and roll into today's show. And while the world, rightfully, in the last 11 months or so, has been focused on the war in Ukraine, um, the work, both practical, legal, and intellectual, here in the States, and even with some of our close allies, to try to shape and build the Navy more in line with the challenges we're facing. It didn't stop in 22. There's been a lot of work going on. And a few things happened that I think in 2023 are going to start to bear fruit or perhaps even get a little momentum. Not insignificant items as well. And uh, sometimes on Midrats, we talk about, you know, little narrow niche targets uh, because we like to do that. But today, we're going to uh, open up the aperture a bit, and we're going to look at some larger macro issues involved with what came up during 2022, what uh, interested navalists should be looking forward to in 2023, keep in your scan, and how those are going to affect things, good, bad, or neutral going forward. And we're real excited to have on today a returning guest, but not just any returning guest, is uh, we kind of mentioned it uh, for a second at our uh, 13th anniversary show last week, but almost 13 years to the date from his visit here to Midrats is our guest for the full hour, Brian McGrath, Commander, United States Navy, retired, and Managing Director of the Ferry Bridge Group, LLC. Brian, thank you very much for joining us this Sunday for another Midrats. Sal, it's very good to be here. Uh, Eagle One, good to be with you too. I, I, uh, I thank you so much for giving me this opportunity 13 years more into my adult dotage. Uh, I hope I, uh, I, hope I am, am worthy of your confidence. 
Well, uh, if, if you've been going 13 years, and so have I, and I, I think I think my illustrious co-host has at least a year or two on me. So you know, he he's setting the standard there for us. Uh, but I, I think we'll, we'll get there okay. You know, that 13 years uh, for you young folks out there, it does go in the blink of an eye. And in a lot of the issues that, that we've talked about during the years and those that have come before us have talked about, um, things don't change overnight. It's it's kind of like the, dif- the difference between growing annuals and uh, having an orchard that you've got to have patience. You've got to pay attention to the details every year. You have to go through a similar process to, to get to what you desired at year one. And I wanted to start today's show on, on a topic that we put in the pre-show discussion that I think um, it tells a larger story besides the little victory check in the block that we have. It talks about persistence is, you know, we, um, you know, we talk about you've been with us for about 13 years, but you mentioned in an article recently about some of the changes in Title 10 that you first saw this need um, almost 14 years ago, or three or three to four years before you joined us on Midrats. And you know, here we are at uh, the the change of a new year in 2023, and we we've seen that change in section. 8062 Alpha, and I wanted to talk for a little bit about, uh, because words mean things, and especially where you are and in your line of work, words mean a lot. Talk a little bit, if you could, about that, that, that 16 to 17-year-old journey and why people that really care about our Navy and the direction it's going, they should be not just interested, but they should be encouraged and excited about something that happened in Congress that affected Title X? Sure. Um, Before I get to that, I want to think about something. I want to think about 13 years ago, 2010, January 2010, and wonder aloud whether where the Navy is today uh, in the context of the threats it faces versus where the Navy was then in the context of the threat threats it faced in 2010, I would say all in all, we've declined in that 13 years. And and I'm just having a little bit of an anxiety attack here on my couch thinking about that, that, wait a second, we we might have been in better shape relative to the threat 13 years ago than we are today, which means we have, if I'm right, it means we've uh, treaded water or paddled uh, for 13 years while our uh, adversaries haven't is that off base do you think no i think you know no. we we were swimming in two knots against a, a 10 knot current i think that's that might be a fair if not um humbling observation uh, mark what do you have yeah i was gonna say i i think we're you know we had we had uh, good aegis cruisers 13 years ago uh that were still viable ships uh, we didn't have the we knew LCS was a mess. We didn't know how much of a mess it was, and we still don't know, I think, fully how disastrous that program is going to be if we keep counting those as real combatants, unless unless somebody changes my mind. I, I yeah, I'm I'm really uh, I'm kind of with you on that. It is depressing to think about that. The the uh, you know we haven't really put any new aircraft out. We, the F-35 was, I guess, was in in. Uh, 
the beginning stages back then, but the, we're yeah. still flying the yeah. F-18s. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> we, we don't have any long-range carrier air, really. It's, I, yeah, it's not, a, it's not a pretty picture. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it in quite those terms before. And, uh, well, thanks, Sal. Thanks for uh, driving me into a depressed state here on this Sunday evening. Um, relative to Title X, uh, I was involved in the uh, drafting of the 2007 Maritime Strategy. Um, there was a lot of work that went into that. Its bottom line uh, assertion was that there was that sea power played a disproportionate role in the maintenance, sustainment, and advancement of American security and prosperity. Um, it, I thought it was. I thought then it was a good message. I think today it remains a good message. Um, I remember, and, th and this is a 2006 time frame, I remember walking around the Pentagon at my boss, Vice Admiral John Morgan's urging to interact with the, um, you know, with the intellectual shops of each of the services and the OSD staff. And um, I'll never forget getting together with a group of folks in the Air Force. I think they called themselves Checkmate. I don't remember again. I'm, I'm an adult. 57-year-old man. I think they called themselves Checkmate. Um, and I just remember sitting there with one of these really bright lieutenant colonels um, who said to me when I was talking about this maintenance, sustainment, and advancement of American security and prosperity, and he looked at me and he said, that's not your mission. Um, and, I, and I said, excuse me? He said, that's not your mission. Your Title X mission and I don't remember the exact words, but it, you know, it's operations incident to combat at sea. And I'll never forget that because I think it was the same mission when I was commissioned. I think in, in ROTC at some point, one of my uh, instructors would have said something about that, what the mission of the United States Navy was. And it's very much focused on kinetic battle war conflict. Um, and what this person was saying was these aspirations that you have or these, this, this thought that you have that the Navy plays this role, it's just nice to have. It's just a, it, it is a lesser included offense under the um, marquee mission of war fighting and that don't, don't think that you can sort of raise that to some level of importance because it, you, you can't. That's not your mission. Um, that's not the first time or the only time I had someone in the Pentagon give me that approach. It's not your mission. It's not your mission. Tend to your knitting. What are you guys supposed to do? War at sea. War at sea. Operations incident to combat at sea. And so I think what that has done over time um, was to give people on the third deck, which is a colloquialism for OSD staff and for people in the other services, when, they, when it was convenient for them and when it served their ends, to bring that up, to bring, hey, Navy, all of this extra force structure that you need or you say you need, 
um, because you need because you say you need to be forward, advancing, sustaining, uh, and protecting American security and prosperity. Um, that's not your job. Why are we paying for that? Why am I getting fewer tanks or fighter wings or uh, infantry brigades in order to pay for something that you're not? It's not your mission. Um, I, I, I I think over time, through work of a lot of people, um, uh, uh, B.J. Armstrong over at the Naval Academy has, has a has a, uh, a cottage industry in this in, in in his ability to make sure everybody recognizes that the Navy does a lot of things when it's not shooting at people that are really important to the health and welfare of this republic. And it always has. Um, so, you know, I've wrote, I've written and spoken about this blind spot in our national strategic makeup for a long time. And when uh, Representative Gallagher uh, uh, just really in an in, in a, in a explication of what we pay legislators to do, um, decided that he was going to mess with the source code of the Navy and propose language that change, changes uh, uh, Title 10, changes that mission. That makes sure that mission statement reflects what presidents have ordered the Navy to do for 240 years. Um, that, that the mission statement had to reflect reality. So uh, I, I quibble with you at my, at, at, at my peril, uh, Sal, but when I saw the, the uh, tagline for the show and it said a new mission, I thought to myself, this isn't a new mission. It's a new mission statement. But the mission of peacetime, prosperity, and security advancement is uh, something we've done for our entire history. Um, and I, it's high time that we're back, that we have that mission statement, the legal justification to sit there in endgame when the budget crunches on and say, no, you're wrong. We do need more capacity in order to pursue this mission. It's not just the amalgamated uh, uh, addition of war plans. That's not what makes Navy force structure. It is war plans. It is exercises. It is forward presence uh, to enable other missions and to enable the, the deterrence and the persuasion uh, of, of folks who might wish to do violence. It's, it is, um, when you have a Navy like we have, it has to be forward if it's going to be of any use to you. Um, and I think there is an intellectual strategic tie between this mission statement and the, uh, the concept of a forward deployed Navy. I'll stop there for for your comments. Well, I, I I personally find it ironic having grown up as a as a uh, sack brat, uh, and their motto was strategic air command motto was um, 
pieces our profession that somebody in the Air Force would question <laughs> that that the Navy didn't have the same uh, deterrent uh, mission that the, that the that SAC claimed for itself. I mean, I, that's that's very odd. But in in the real world, is this a change that that matters most to the the great minds in the inside the Beltline area, or is it is this a uh, is this something that when we go out in public and we can say, look, you know, the reason you support the Navy is because uh, our, our mission now fully uh, clearly states that it's, it's to encourage uh, peace in the world? I think um, I would be, I, I would be uh, less than truthful if I didn't say this wasn't very much inside baseball. Um, that kind of a thing. And I would be definitely overstating uh, its impact if I were to, uh, I mean, let's face it, I think 355 ships is the law also. Um, the, the law gets ignored. Uh, these, especially uh, some, you know, things such as this, sometimes a little more aspirational in nature. Um, I don't expect that... Uh, in the uh, fiscal year 24 budget drop in the spring uh, that we're going to see great uh, reams of money raining down on the Navy because uh, Congressman Gallagher was able to change Title X law. Um, what I see are fewer lieutenant commanders and commanders and captains and rear admirals having to go into the kind of bare-knuckle brawling that is the process that creates a defense budget and ever have to put up with that crap again that it's not your mission it is our mission we need force structure that enables us to be forward to be forward you need to have a training base you need to have a maintenance base you now need to have upkeep and you need to have a sustainment base all of that goes into a three or four ships to get one, that sort of a that, that sort of ratio that we've all been familiar with for our whole lives. Uh, we now have a mission that makes it crystal clear that that's not just a bunch of admirals who want ships for their own sake. And um, if I could have a pushback on your pushback, though, I think I think we're we're having a a a, a plight agreement on the same uh, premise, but. Um, is it a new mission or is it not? I guess it depends. And this is a subject you and I have talked about for at least a decade, maybe not 13 years, but at least a decade. Um, to you and me, no. When we talk to our fellow uh, people in the, the maritime and the naval sphere, uh, in some ways I think we are fish trying to talk about water. I understand certain <laughs> fundamentals. You understand certain fundamentals, and we don't feel the need to talk about them too much to each other. However, let's go back to your Air Force Lieutenant Colonel's comment. He's he doesn't live in water; he lives in air. So you know he doesn't know what we're talking about, and so to him, in one of the efforts you made, and I I, I don't know if you wrote about it or you tweeted about it again, you. Um, pointed everybody to the series of speeches you made a few years ago at the Rotary Club, your road show. 
is it is new to some people, and especially people who have access to levers of power whose expertise might be in economics or trial law or just politics, they don't appreciate what we assume to be an old mission, and a lot of it has to be, it goes back to the world we live in right now. Just in the last few years, it's slipping out of living memory. But when you consider that almost everybody are a post-World War II generation, is the globe in the world that the U.S. Navy built after World War II is assumed to be the normal. And the whole global system of trade and economics and access to resources was built upon that new reality that now is, if not under threat, it has a different dynamic. So, you know, when we we make a change to Title X that, you know, just looks like stating the obvious, is that a byproduct of, I don't want to use the phrase arrogance, but just maybe uh, benign entitlement and assumptions of a reality. And are there other things about maritime power that may need to be codified in other ways to force the issue? I like what you said. So now we have lieutenant commanders, commanders, captains, admirals on up, don't have to run around explaining to people what, was what we always assumed to be the natural state. Is it, is this kind of a process that we're looking at that, that maybe we just need to codify like we did here, things that we assume everybody knows, but they don't because they're not fish? Well, when I think about this situation through that context and through that lens that you discussed, then I say to you, then, then I would agree it is new. Uh, it is new on a lot of people. Um, the codification of what that means, um, I think I would have to, I, I think, I, without knowing the specifics, like what other things would be, because I mean, now we have a mission, now we have 355 ships, I think we have, you know, we have a number of aircraft carriers. Um, the Marine Corps has, in its mission, uh, um, I guess three infantry infantry divisions. You know they've got their sizes set in law. Um, maybe maybe more codification is required in order to um, to remind people or to uh, jar people uh, in, into a better sense of required. Um, I you know you mentioned that um, that little speaking tour I did and I, and I traveled around in 2016, 2017 to every County in the state of Maryland. And I spoke in the County seat at the, uh, at the uh, Rotary club there. Um, And and it was just all about trying to uh, explain what the Navy was doing for their country. And it really was quite eye opening the degree to which what I said opened eyes. Uh, people just didn't know. They didn't realize. They didn't get it. They, didn't, they did not realize the degree to which our Navy had slipped, the degree to which its readiness had slipped, the degree how small it had gotten. Um, 
I, you know, I would I talked to people way out in Western Maryland uh, one night in January. It was three degrees below zero out there uh, about the Navy, and and it was such a good group of people, great Americans, uh, business people in their in, in their county. I think it was Garrett County, I think it was, and and I was in, and they were just so taken aback at the paint the picture I painted, and I don't think I painted an unrealistic paint picture i didn't you know i wasn't gloom and doom i was I, I was mostly we need to do better because we have serious threats um so maybe additional codification maybe additional uh, certainly ad- additional storytelling additional narrative development additional um uh additional uh, people out there talking about sea power and its and its uh impact um on our security and prosperity, yeah, it's required. Yeah, I, I always caution against more codification because it ties your hands in a lot of ways. And although every now and then Congress says something right, so like I think it's codified that we're supposed to have 11 carriers. Um, and I, that makes some sense to me that somebody in the Navy said, look, we just can't fall below this or we're going to get in trouble. But that also reminds me that the Marine Corps is making an active push to get a whole bunch of, of new little ships to, or not even that little, but lo- new ships to move Marine Corps people around, uh, manned by Navy people. And, and I'm le- looking at this, their number is 38, Navy number is 18. I'm thinking, is that going to count against, are those real warships? And the answer is apparently not. But let's talk about that a little bit, about these light oh, no, no, no. Those, warships. Those, those light amphibious warships will count. They will count in the ship count. Uh, there is no, there is no reason that they would not count. Um, uh, I, I think the nature of their mission, this is the light amphibious warfare uh, ship he's talking about, and, and I wrote about this last week um, in Defense One uh, about my my misgivings with this ship. Um, uh, it, it all boils down to this sense that I have that what the Marines want to do with ex- expeditionary advanced base operations is something I really, really, really want them to be able to do, uh, and that is kill ships from the shore and kill airplanes from the shore during combat. I really would love for them to be able to do those things. In order for them to do those things, those, those uh, kinetic outposts need to have missiles and parts and food and water and grease and all of the things that go into to, uh, uh, providing that sort of power. And they have, uh, the Marines have, have come up with this, this light amphibious warship as a means for the logistic support of those EABOs, among other things, but that logistic support for EABOs is chief among them. Um, and and I keep coming back to the sense that if this machine is to do its job, how they have specced it is insufficient to the task. It is too slow, and it is it, it has no 
no armament, no weaponry. And I know everybody who's, who looks at these things, they, that's just McGrath trying to create you know, pocket battleships again. Now, I, I don't like the idea of 75 Marines and 40 sailors uh, on a ship that has essentially a surface search radar, a 25-millimeter gun, and a 50-caliber machine gun. That, that's not... Oh, excuse me. And that, and that ship providing logistic support to important Marine Corps missions while the shooting is happening. Um, and, and that article I wrote raised uh, some, some um, comments that uh, Marine Corps uh, Combat Development Center Commanding General, uh, Lieutenant General Heckel brought up, where he basically was indicating that, he, that the ships weren't going to be, they're going to go bed down when the shooting starts. They're going to go, go hide when the shooting starts. And um, it struck me as a real disconnect and that, and that there was a, a, a real storytelling problem here uh, that the Marine Corps has with this, with this ship uh, and the fact that the uh, latest uh, budget, the 23 budget, put the ship off for two years to create some decision space was something I was writing about as a positive thing. Um, not everything has to be not everything has to be tricked out. Not everything has to be, um, you know, a proper warship. Um, if your job is to keep combat readiness at a high level on, dis uh, on distributed Marine Corps bases all around East Jesus in the Southwest Pacific, um, I, I personally would like that ship to be more capable, uh, specifically faster and have somewhat more of a C5I suite than it has today. Faster than 14 to 16 knots, I don't think is an unreasonable goal. Faster or more C5 ISRT than a uh, surface search radar, a 25 millimeter chain gun, and a 50 cal machine gun, I don't think that's a, uh, you know, a, a heavy lift. Over. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because um, when I was reading that article, I had to stop. I had to go back. It's like, what did I just read? Go back. And maybe you can help us because you, you work in these environs, um, thankfully, probably more than 98.7% of people in this area. Is, and I'll, I'll quote that from the deputy commander for the combat development integration. Um, he said, uh, this is from the article, as war nears, the new amphibious ship goes into hiding. It goes into bed down somewhere. Nowhere do we envision the light amphibious, the law, out transiting the sea lanes in the middle of a kinetic fight, unquote. I'm sorry. Um, I don't think you're able to have a training timeout in the middle of war if you have Marines on islands that are relying on something in peace. At war, I don't see a combatant commander going, I'm, I'm sorry, shipmate, we, we can't, uh, we, we got to hide this thing. We can't send it. It's, it's just not going to happen that way. And we've seen this before when, uh, it was maybe eight or nine years ago when some of the realities of LCS came through. Um, the, I believe it was the CNO at the time who, who said, well, you know, LCS can, can run away real fast and we'll pull it out because we're not going to have it in a high fight or something of that manner. And it, it turns back 
to a mindset where we both like to use the term the green eye shade considerations because in peacetime, when you're looking at budgets, uh, you can understand why you would want to, you know, save 10 cents so you can have 10 units as opposed to eight units. Uh, is it really just the the green eye shade getting the majority vote in these decisions, or is there a real intellectual disconnect, which I would find shocking, about what the realities of a large Western Pacific war at sea would actually look like? I don't think there's going to be any hiding west of Wake. So I, I have been dubious about law um, for a while now. I, I, I first ran into it, I think, when, the, when General Berger put his, uh, his uh, commander's intent out when he took office in the summer of 2019. I was intrigued, like most of America who was paying attention. I was intrigued because there were, I thought there was some interesting thinking going on. Um, I found myself um, thinking, where are they going to get the money? Then, then I read on in, in General Berger's uh, commander's intent, and I talked, and I saw him talking about retiring legacy platforms, and that got my spider senses tingling a little bit, um, what, because what what we have seen, and it, and it, obviously there isn't a one-to-one uh, relationship here, but we have lost. We the Marine Corps has has come down from its theological. Uh, uh, connection with 38 amphibs uh, to 31 amphibs, uh, which by that I mean the LHD, LHA, LSD, LPD-17 versions, um, they've come down to that almost magically as they have come up with this 30, you know, this three dozen uh, laws. So it seems to me like they are trying to um, um, cannibalize uh, proper amphibious force structure for this um, this capability, and I thought to myself, well, if this capability has uh, an impact on the warfight and does in fact do what it sounds like it'll do, maybe it's worthwhile. But what I, as I keep pulling on this string, uh, I, I, I found myself thinking, no, it, it doesn't look like this ship is going to be a ship that can. Uh, can properly operate in a contested environment. Um, and two things really surprised me and, 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 and rolled, and when they rolled out, they made me realize, okay, I think I, I, think I am onto something here. Um, one was this set of remarks that uh, uh, General Heckel made last fall that I, um, that I glommed onto, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is, this is all about how do we keep this at $150 million or less per copy. It's a, it was a desire to, uh, to make this risk-worthy platform into something that they could afford to buy in significant enough numbers that they could use it with their um, marine littoral regiments. Um, the problem still comes back to the use case. It still comes back to... Um, what they wish to do with the EABOs requires a logistic ship that is more capable than this. And when he- General Heckel said um, uh, that, that 
you know, this is, uh, it's going to bed down. It's not going to, yes, I get it. This isn't going to, this, this ship isn't going to putz around at 14 knots in the middle of a, uh, in, in the middle of a wide open sea for the Chinese uh, surveillance environment to find and kill. I get it. Um, I, 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 wanna under, I want to give General Heckel the benefit of the doubt on this and not make it sound like McGrath knows everything and Heckel knows nothing. That's not it. Heckel's a smart guy. Heckel has good ideas. But I think when you think about how the ship is going to do what it's supposed to do, which is to provide logistics under fire to incredibly important capabilities, uh, it has to be more than it is. Um, I, I just don't, I don't understand, uh, I, I don't understand why he said, uh, why he said what he did, uh, but perhaps they'll respond. Yeah, I don't think I would count on that. The, uh... I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there looking. I go, well, what about the EPFs? They, they're, they're everything you're looking for, and they go fast when you need them to, and uh, and, and they get, you know, they get everything you want for for uh, legs and all the rest of it, and they hold more, and they've got more space. I mean, I started doing all kinds of calculations, and I can't figure out other than the fact that they occasionally crack and and may just fall apart, but. Uh, I don't understand why the EPF isn't sufficient, and I also don't. I really hate the idea of we can. Yeah, we can, we'll cut down to 31 big amphibs, and we want 38 little ones. And all of a sudden, you got a 74 part part of your navy that is that is amphibs. Not so bad if you have a if you have the uh, other numbers in in combatants that actually do blue water or, or uh, inshore fighting. But my goodness, this. Uh, the, I mean, the other option, as far as I was concerned, is the Marines want to play Hezbollah and their and their C 801s shooting up the Israeli Navy. Uh, you know, let's then let's. You know, I, I'm not sure they need anything more complicated than you know, a truck loaded with the right uh, gear and uh, and and little tiny detachments everywhere, so you've diversified your and spread your force around. But you're, as you point out, they're they've got this combat regiment thing going. I'm I'm not quite clear on all the concepts. Well, they, they um, one of the things they in their in their defense they talked about one of the ways that this uh, vessel, the light amphibious warship, will be survivable is that it will have a low signature. Um, um, I think you can probably design in signature control. Again, every dollar, every every you know decibel of signature control, whether it's acoustic or radar return or whatever. Um, it's expensive. Uh, signature control is an expensive proposition. So you immediately then begin to, to uh, uh, eat away at your desire of a cheap, expendable, risk-worthy ship. Um, if this ship were being built for peacetime operations, uh, I'd say it's a, it's, a reasonable, uh, it's a reasonable desire and and or why couldn't we use Army LCMs that do pretty much the same thing? Um, uh, the Army's got a ton of LCMs, I think. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I just think there's a mismatch. I want, I want the Marines to do shore-based anti-ship cruise missile firing and integrated air and missile defense. I think that would add a lot to the war fighting posture in the Western Pacific. I want them to be able to do that with confidence and to be able to move around quickly, both 
the, uh, the, the warfighting capability itself and the logistics associated with that undertaking. I want all of those things to happen. I just don't think that the logistics side of this has been thought through as well as it should and that this particular ship is under spec for the role they want it to have, number one, and, it, and because it ate up seven big amphibs, uh, it bothers me because the things that amphibs were doing and can do remain really important to this Navy, to the Marine Corps, and to the nation. Um, we, uh, one of the things I mentioned in this article is that the fact that we have these, uh, especially the LPD-17s, uh, floating around without any offensive missiles on them, without SM-6, without T-LAM Block 5, without any ability to really kill other ships or uh, perform land attack missions, that's a sin. That's a sin we can solve. We could, go, we could put box launchers on. We could, uh, in, in their uh, uh, CNO availabilities, we could put um, VLS launchers in them. We could solve that problem. Um, but, uh, you know, th this, this discussion of how uh, that, that, that the big amphibs are so, are so um, vulnerable that we need to have these small amphibs, we need to build them in numbers, but then I read McFiddick saying we're not going to use them when they're vulnerable. And none of this story, it doesn't add up for me. And I, uh, I wrote this article hoping that I can put some pressure on decision makers to ask inconvenient questions of the Navy and of the Marine Corps um, to determine, you know, what exactly do they want to do with this thing and what exactly are EABOs going to do um, because I thought I knew what they were going to do, and I thought I thought, and I thought I was very much in favor of that. I'm not so sure anymore. Yeah, asking questions. I mean, just like you did the the, the questions and concerns that you outlined about the LAW. You know, that that comes from a perspective of somebody who was a not just a um, a career naval officer, but since then has been soaking in these issues for a long time. And to ask informed questions requires knowledge. And this sounds like a political question, but it's really not. But I want to circle back. You know, we, we talked about the changes to Title X. That's law. Things like that have got to go yeah. through Congress, has to have good staff. And, you know, many kudos in the world to Representative Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin. Comma, however... He was part of a bipartisan dynamic duo with Representative Elaine Loria, Democrat of Virginia. And uh, whether you're, you know, put politics to the side, if you're concerned with navalist issues, uh, Representative Loria, she was, she lost her election in the fall, so she won't be coming back. And for those that have watched her, or have had an opportunity to talk to her, preferably both, very knowledgeable and also has the right attitude, willing to sharp, informed questions that uh, you, you can't wiggle out. And if you try to wiggle out, they're going to squish you back. Representative Gallagher is good at that. So um, regardless of what political party they may be associated with, uh, there's been a change in um, power, the leading party in the House of Representatives, which is going to have some changes in that landscape. But there also have been you know, a, 
Elaine Loria will not be in Congress, but there have been some people with military backgrounds who are coming into Congress. And I think that's that, that type of knowledge base and that type of personality is what a lot of us are looking at to ask the questions like you asked, but to do that with somebody who has congressional power and influence. Um, for the listeners here, just, just real fast, uh, with the new Congress, are there some new names out there that – uh, if you don't have knowledge of, at least pique your interest that people can track on that might be able to help us shape the Navy we need by doing what um, Gallagher and Luria had done over the last few years. I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, I do know that sea power is uh, – in a lesser position than it was in the last Congress. Uh, Elaine Luria was, in fact, a national asset. Uh, she, she grabbed a row, grabbed an oar, and rowed when it came to uh, sea power. And she, uh, she sometimes asked inconvenient questions and, and uh, caused uh, senior people some embarrassment, um, but to her. She was always rowing in the right direction. Um, she's almost irreplaceable. I don't know who in her uh, caucus uh, will step up and, and will fill that hole, or even if they consider it a hole. Um, Representative Gallagher um, did not get the chairmanship of the Sea Power Committee, but he did get uh, the chairmanship of a special select committee on China, uh, which is going to be a huge, huge undertaking and a real feather in his cap. Uh, I just hope that he is able to stay on the sea power beat um, in the face of what that new responsibility will bring to him in terms of workload, because he's going to be a busy, a busy fellow. Um, one, th- I, I don't think that Lane Murray is gone. I, I think she'll, I, I, I think she'll be in and around town for a while, and I think uh, she may be back someday. Um, I think the uh, the 2023 NDAA created a, 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 a commission on the future of the U.S. Navy, um, in which uh, the uh, there's eight people can be uh, eight members can be po- appointed to the committee. Um, it's by the leadership of the House and Senate. I would be shocked. I would be absolutely shocked if Elaine Luria isn't the number one draft pick of the, uh, the Democrats in uh, the House and the Senate to be on that committee. So I think she'll have a voice and she'll be, uh, she'll be uh, influential uh, for the term of that commission, which I think is two years. One of the other things that we've talked about here a lot and, and uh, Maria and others have talked about is the, is the, uh, inability of our shipyards to seem to keep up with the demand that we're even the limited demand we've been putting on them in the speech that uh, SecNav delivered to um, Surface Navy Association he had an interesting comment he said and this all the other stuff was pretty interesting too but he said uh, we are looking to create significant shipyard capacity in the Pacific uh, do you have any idea where <laughs> Where that came from? Is he talking about on our Pacific coast? Uh, one of the, I mean, Guam's already got some shipyard capability, but uh, 
and let's talk about that shipyard capability. But not, I was struck by that particular comment. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know. I heard the same comment. I don't know what he has planned. I'm not read into it, so I, I can't say. Um, uh, one of the one of the trends that I'm identifying, and when I talk to my to to, pe- to my clients, and I talk to people who listen to me, one of the trends that I'm detecting is a more aggressive uh, prodding of the industrial base by Navy leadership. And I saw this at the end of last year. Uh, I track, you know, I, I see when I see CNO traveling, I see SECNAV traveling, uh, and then it was it was you know pretty obvious that Surf's Navy Association, uh, Admiral Cottle called out the Defense Industrial Base. Um, SECNAV had some questions for the Defense Industrial Base. Um, I'm writing about this, and I have an article that'll come out sometime in the first week of February. But the bottom line here is. Um, there was, there was a line that the, the CEO of Lockheed Martin used at the Reagan Forum in the first week of December out in Simi Valley, California. Uh, and I'm building this article around this line he used. And, and the line went something like this. Uh, the United States defense industrial base is scoped for efficient peacetime production. Um, that may not that may not sound like uh, insightful insight to anybody else, but to me, those fourteen words perfectly encapsulated the problem we have right now, and that is we are not at war with Russia, but we are sure as hell in war with Russia. We are not at war with China, but we are preparing for war with China. And we are doing so with an industrial base that is chugging along like it's 2008. Um, uh, and so when Admiral Cottle uh, goes after the defense industrial base and when others go after the de- defense industrial base, I think we have to realize that they have for years been acclimatized to efficiently providing exactly what the federal government was asking for. And then came COVID. Uh, and, I, and I don't think we can, I don't think we can just sort of dismiss out of hand the workforce issues they had, the supply chain issues they had. Hell, I couldn't get toilet paper. Um, I, 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 you'd think there would be plenty of that to, available to Americans. Um, let alone, let alone uh, sophisticated parts and raw materials to make uh, radar screens and all of the things that we really need um, to make our defense industrial base go. We couldn't. We, the whole system slowed down. Um, so anybody that goes around, you know, yelling at the defense industrial base to do more, do more, do more, I'm not gonna, I don't accept your excuses. They're not excuses. It's just the way it is right now, and it's partially because there was never any margin in the system to begin with. They were, they were building every day to efficient peacetime requirements. That doesn't cut it anymore. Yeah, I was kind of laughing as you were saying that because we can both trace back to where this came from. You know, people say, why do you have an MBA? It's like, 
I got it in the 1990s when the CNO said that we needed to have a business mindset. So I was a good, I was a good little lieutenant and did what I was told. Um, so I mean, that's, it's been with us for a long time. And it, not to wax your apple or anything, but there are a few people, one of which is Jerry in the chat room, he he might he would he might be in the same cohort as you are, but there are few people that can hold a, a candle to the argument and the drum you've been beating for so long about numbers, but not just numbers, but numbers combined with capability. I know you and I have had this back and forth, or I'll make some low T comment about you know budget restrictions, and you're like, I don't care, <laughs> we need what we need, and we're going to ask for it, and you you find the money. I think that's a fair argument, and. Um, Another former Midrats get, Sam Tamacredi, over um, in the latest issues of uh, Proceedings. Uh, there's an interesting uh, quote of his I just wanted to get your take at, um, kind of throwing some raw meat in the lion's den here. But uh, doing what folks do in his position, uh, he looked at 28 naval wars going back to you know, 500 B.C. And of those 28 naval wars, he saw only three instances where superior technology defeats bigger numbers. And that feeds into, it's not an excuse perhaps, it's maybe a talking point, but we're a two-ocean Navy. The, the People's Republic of China is not. And while we've been in this post-World War II entitlement, they've been building up one hell of a fleet and that they just need to focus on locally. And, and here's a quote from uh, Tangredi, quote, all other wars were won by superior numbers or when equal forces, superior strategy or admiralship. Often all three qualities act together because operating a large fleet generally facilitates more extensive training and is often an indicator that leaders are concerned with strategic requirements, unquote. That is just kind of a, 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 a polite way of saying that we're in a bit more of a pickle than we think we are for those that are, are poo-pooing the quality inherent in the quantity of the Chinese fleet. You know, where do you think that balance is and should be part of our argument? I, I think, first of all, that Sam Tangredi's article um, is one of the most important things I've read in 10 years. Um, because it, 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 with scholarship and, uh, and unemotionally, uh, goes directly at the capability versus capacity argument, uh, especially the the um, absolute intellectual, intellectually stultifying sense that it has to be one or the other. Uh, it's not. It is. It has to be a blend, and sometimes, uh, like the, the Soviet admiral says, quantity has a quality all of its own. Um, I, when I think about um, our fleet and I think about uh, the Chinese fleet and I think about the way they operate their fleet currently, the fact that they don't have an overseas basing structure, they don't have an overseas uh, uh, distribution network, they don't have these things yet, they don't have the, they don't have the capacity yet to be able to operate as a global fleet, they can go make, they can go make some, um, uh, they can go make some overseas deployments. They can get parts shipped to places they need, 
and food and all the stuff they need for a peacetime employment. Uh, they don't have the infrastructure for wartime uh, force employment. Um, what that what that means to me is that if if there were a conflict. Uh, so much more of their fleet would be available for them in that conflict, but a good portion of that fleet would be vulnerable. Whereas, um, in, in, in my view of the world, uh, our balance, and like you refer to as a two-ocean navy, um, it leads me to believe that in such a conflict, after the initial rounds of of uh, violence and when some sort of a stasis is reached, um, the fact that we still have two thirds of our navy, or fifty to two percent to two thirds of our navy available to pursue what comes next, is definitely an advantage we have. It's not an advantage in every scenario. It's not an advantage uh, um, if China decides to create a mirror image of our Navy or some version of a global Navy. Um, those, th those things will change. But for now, uh, I like the way we have our insufficient, insufficiently maintained uh, and, and insufficiently sized fleet I like the way we have it postured. We just need more of it. That's kind of where I am right now. And, and the other thing, by and large, Jerry, Jerry, who you mentioned in, in the chat room, Jerry and I have been like this. We've been like frickin' frack for, you know, a long time. If you want people to come to you and tell you how you can spend the same amount of money more efficiently, you probably don't want to talk to Jerry or me. If you want to talk about what kind of Navy we actually need, how expensive it's going to be, and why that expense is warranted. Talk to Jerry. Talk to Brian. <laughs> this ties into that, that, that uh, article you commented on by Megan Eckstein about the Fleet Forces Command suggesting decoupling destroyers. Uh, you want you, you want to uh, take a few minutes to talk about that because it's a pretty yeah, 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 interesting yeah. Well, topic. He I mean, let's, let's face it, right? What is OFRP? The Operational Fleet Response Plan is a way to manage forces in peacetime to produce predictable readiness for uh, use by the combatant commanders. It is, I've referred to it, it's a pie factory. OFRP makes pies. And, and you get pies, you get pies, you get pies. Um, I don't know that OFRP is the kind of thing we need. We might need a high-end restaurant approach where someone out there is ordering a, a, a radicchio salad, someone's ordering oysters on the half shell, someone's ordering a 17-ounce uh, Delmonico. Um, there has to be more of a sense of a blend of those two things. And what Caudill, I think Admiral Caudill's thinking about is that we don't necessarily have to tie all of our or so much of our force structure to this traditional pattern of carrier strike group employment, which is tied at its heart to the carrier's maintenance cycle. 
We can and should be thinking about other ways to employ destroyers and frigates and, uh, and, and, uh, and even amphibious ships. We do this to an extent. There are in, independent deployers all the time. Not a lot, but some. Um, I, I have teed up, uh, uh, I just did it in, 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 uh, in Twitter last week, this idea that I have that this, the DDGX class that the Navy wants to build and should build and needs to build, that uh, perhaps it should be built from the ground up as a ship that is not a carrier strike group asset, that it is a geographic asset that we build for a constant level of employment in certain places rather than to serve, rather than tying the numbers of the thing to the numbers of carrier strike groups that we uh, that we wish to employ. Um, I, I think what one advantage to that is that you could take an equal amount of money that you now spend to get two large surface combatants and two small surface combatants every year, and you could you could then you could instead acquire one and a half large surface combatants a year and four small surface combatants a year you would you would uh, you could uh, so that every year you'd be buying five uh, you'd be buying five and a half ships instead of four number one you would change the 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 uh, makeup of the surface force where you'd have over time you'd have fewer large surface combatants and more numerous small surface combatants and a, some percentage of those new la large surface combatants would, would then come out of the rotation and not be carrier strike group deployers. I think you discussed uh, some of your experience with this and some of our experience as a country with this in the, on the gun line in Vietnam. Um, I think one of the advantages we had then was like an 1,100 ship Navy and we had lots of ships with less things, fewer things to do and I think that added to that. When you got as small as we got over time, um, uh, Fleet, For Fleet Forces Command Admiral, under Admiral Davidson, when he was there, came up with OFRP, which was all about efficiency, all about level-loading shipyards, all about a peacetime mindset to how a Navy should be employed. That is insufficient to the moment. We need to start to think about how do we generate Com generate and maintain forward-based combat power. Well, as you like to end a lot of your uh, your writing, winter is coming, so to speak. But winter it's uh, it's time to get yeah. religion. I tell I tell you what, Brian, it's been it's been a great hour. I really appreciate you investing some time with us today. You have been on a a quasi prolific writing run. If uh, the listeners wanted to keep track of you, uh, where's a good place for them to keep an eyeball? And are you working on something right now that we should uh, definitely look for in the near future? Yeah, the best place, best thing to do is follow me on Twitter. It's at Conswahoo, C-O-N-S-W-A-H-O-O, -O, uh, because I, I, every time I write something, I, I link to it. Um, I am, in fact... Uh, writing something right now that I, I previewed a little bit here earlier today, um, or I, I, I think the title of it, the working title of it is, we're just not serious about war. Uh, and it takes, that, um, it takes that statement from the Lockheed Martin 
CEO and builds on that, 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 that we are, in order for us to get different results, we have to do different things. Uh, and we're not going to get more ships. We're not going to get more precision missiles. We're not going to get more artillery shells or stinger missiles by continuing to uh, shape our defense industrial base for peacetime, efficient peacetime production. Well, perfect. Well, I look forward to reading that. And uh, thanks again, Brian. Really appreciate your uh, your time with us today. Yeah, it's been great. Absolute Thank you. pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRats. Until next time, we hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers. Yeah.